This talk is about explanation of the weather, trying to explain the weather, not trying to predict it. Um, and some people think they are already very clear why we're seeing the weather we're seeing. So the Mail Online, for example, um, says firmly that climate change is a great green con and that all these theories about why the, weather, the world is warming up um, is, uh, is uh, completely last decade, so to speak. Bloomberg Business Week, in contrast, firmly blamed Hurricane Sandy, that's the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy there in New York, on global warming. Uh, they were very clear about it. Anybody who didn't agree with them was stupid. Um, so I guess that probably makes me stupid, because I'm not sure, um, certainly about Hurricane Sandy. So we're going to get on to um, events like Hurricane Sandy as we progress through the lecture. But I'm going to start off with more about climate and about why we think climate change is happening. Um, and apologies for this, because you, you've, you've come for it to hear a lecture about the weather, but unless you get the sort of the background on why we think what we think about global climate, then you can't really make sense of what we're saying about the weather. I've got a selfish um, agenda here as well, um, so I should declare straight away. I'm um, responsible in the current IPCC assessment cycle, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Um, there's, about, there's hundreds of authors involved. I'm the one who's tasked with coming up with how we explain to to the general public and to worse to politicians, um, how we um, decide how much warming is due to human influence and how much is due to other factors. And so my job is not to give the answer, but to explain how we get to the answer we get to. And so this is what I've been scratching my head over quite a bit for the past few months, and I'm trying out the explanation on you. So, um, yep, you are the guinea pigs. Um, and so, as we go through, um, I really appreciate, you know, hey, I'm totally lost now. You know, if you want to put your hand up and say, that didn't make sense, that's actually really useful for me, because part of my, my main job at the moment is trying to get this explanation right. So, this is talking about the question of how we reach these statements, like most of the warming over the past 50 years is due to the anthropogenic rise in greenhouse gas levels due to the, the, green, the increase in greenhouse gases caused by human activity. Um, and the starting point for this is this kind of figure, which I'm sure is, is very familiar to you. The, the coloured dots are ob observations of global temperature from 1860 to 2010. The red line, which you can see going through the middle there, is, the, is a simple average of the latest generation of climate models, um, simulations of the response to human influences. So that's a combination of rising greenhouse gases and other forms of pollution in the atmosphere. And then the black line is, uh, again, the same models uh, simulating from the past um, what we th how the climate would have responded to things like solar variations and volcanic eruptions. So the most striking thing you can see, obviously, on the black line are the sort of sharp dips in temperature you get following a major volcanic eruption, the most recent one of these being uh, Mount Pinatubo in 1992. So you can see that sharp dip there um, in the uh, natural uh, climate, the evolution of a natural climate. And so how do we take this kind of data 
and work out how much of the warming we see in, that, in those pink dots is attributable to human influence. So I'm going to take you through this process now, and I hope you'll stop me if I lose you, because in September, unfortunately not me, but one of my, one somebody much more important in the IPCC will have to take the world's politicians through the same process, and, and they kind of have to understand, or at least I think they have to understand. There's an interesting problem in, in the IPCC. A lot, a lot of people sort of talk about the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, along the lines of, well, you know, 700 scientists say this, so you better believe it. I, I really don't like that way of presenting any form of science, particularly climate science. You know, if you don't understand it, you don't have to believe it, okay? That's the point. I mean, you, you know, science is about you understanding it, not just me saying, you know, I'm a professor, take my word for it. Um, so, remember what we got here. The observed temperatures, coloured dots, and I've coloured them in according to the temperature. So, so, so red is warmer, blue is colder. And you've got the model simulated anthropogenic. I'll, I'll use the word anthropogenic a lot, but it just means human-induced, uh, if you if, to try and try and remember that, um, is the red line, and then the warming and cooling due to the sun and volcanoes is the black line. So for, the first thing we do is take exactly the same data and we plot it not against time, but against the anthropogenic warming. Okay, so we've just, instead of, instead of putting time in the horizontal axis, I've put the size of the anthropogenic warming. So notice where the red line reaches 0.2, I've got a 0.2 tick there. And where the red line reaches 0.4, that's the 0.4 tick. Okay? With me so far. I haven't changed anything. It's all, the, the idea of this, you know, there's, there's nothing up my sleeve. It's not statistical voodoo. Okay. So now all we do is we straighten out that So notice now we've got a, a non-linear, it's a non-uniform non horizontal axis, okay? So I'm just gonna straighten it out, okay? The big danger with doing this kind of thing in Oxford is of course, probably half a dozen people in the audience are probably um, professors of statistics. And, and so, 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 so it's, but, but if you're not a professor of statistics, you're welcome to chip in, okay? <laughs> And even if you are, but perhaps reserve it till later. Okay, so, um, so, so here we are. So what I've done is I've just straightened out the axis, okay? And because I've straightened out the axis, the red line is now a straight line because I'm plotting human-induced warming against human-induced warming. Obviously, I've got a straight line. Um, and and the, the dots are sort of clustered up towards the beginning because, you know, the, the anthropogenic warming sort of started slow and then got fast. So that's why it's sort of been bunched up in this way. Okay, so having done this, I can then say, right, let's plot the natural warming against the anthropogenic warming, that's the black line there, the sort of slightly distorted version of the black line, and overlay the observations. So I'm just going to put the observations, the coloured dots, down on top of the natural curve. Here we are. So I haven't changed anything, I've just sort of moved the axes. Alright? So you're still with me what I'm doing here. Okay? Imagine you're a sort of slightly bored politician. You know, would, you, would you still feel you were following at this point? Not really. Not no, really. No, this point already getting a bit confused. That last bit, that, this, this step is... So, so we got to here. Yeah, everybody's still, still there. You're just plotting everything against the human-induced warming. Okay? And now, maybe the next little step will help. I'm now going to put it all together on... So, so colour is the observed warming. Y-axis is natural warming and cooling. And X-axis is human-induced warming. So the problem is you've got three things. This is the fundamental challenge we've got here. We've got nature playing a role, we've got humans playing a role, and we've got the thing, we've, what actually happened. 
So you're sort of stuck with this thing being intrinsically three-dimensional. Fortunately, I've been playing around with that. Okay? So here we are. I'm, I'm, I'm raising that third dimension. So the observed warming is not just color, but it's how far we are off the, off the screen. Okay? So your observation's one way, human-induced warming the other way, and natural warming in the third direction. Okay? If I had three arms, I'd be able to give you three axes. All right? So, so you, do, you, do you sort of feel, you, you understand what I'm doing here? I'm plotting the observations against human influences and natural influences. Now, having done that, I can turn it around, okay, and you can see that the observations lie remarkably close to a plane. There you are, there's the plane. There's the best fit plane through the observations. And as the author of that blackboard said, everything has to be made as simple as possible, but not simpler. Okay? And this is kind of, I'm really trying to get across the fact that we don't, in order to explain what's happening, we have to account for the fact that nature is kicking the climate around, and human influences are kicking the climate around, and we have to assess both. We can't just look at our models and say, the models are warming up, therefore the world's warming up because of human influence. That's not the way we work. We don't rely on the models that way. What we do is we rely on fitting the models to the observations, explaining the observations with the patterns of change we expect coming out of the models. And this fitting process means that the amount of warming we blame on human influence is driven by what we actually observe in the real world. It's not something that comes out of the models alone. We use the models to tell us what to look for, but the amount of warming we blame on human influence is something we actually get from the data. Just yes, please, because that's the point. My problem with that is that you use the model to define one of your axes. I use the model to define one of the patterns I'm looking for, but not the size of the signal. Yeah? So, so that is crucial. We, we have to, physics has to come into this. You can't you can't work out causation from a single event. And, you know, we only have one observation of the world. I mean, the world itself. So you can't, you can't address the cause and effect problem by just looking at the data. You actually have to have some... You have to use some physics to work out what to look for. But all I've done is taken what the model predicted would, how the climate would evolve but without assuming the model got the size of the signal right at all, um, and I've, in response to human influence, and also how the model predicted the, the world would evolve in response to natural factors, and I've used these two to try and explain what I'm seeing in the real world. Right, but you, you're, you're adjusting strategy, the formula that you used to distort the graph. That was based on the hockey It was based on the shape, the shape of the hockey of, stick, not necessarily the magnitude. Yes, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. So the shape is important. You see that it's qualitatively right. Yeah, yeah. So the shape is crucially important. But again, we kind of know when the emissions happened. What we don't know is what the sensitivity of the climate is, and that's a whole other lecture. We don't really know what the sensitivity of the climate is to those emissions. But we do know, you know, pretty much when we were burning, you know, fossil fuels and, and when we were pumping out other forms of of pollution and so forth. So that, that shape is in many ways much better known than the magnitude of the response. Now the magnitude of the response, if, you, if all you had was the models and you, and you didn't have any observations to look at at all, 
then you probably have to admit the magnitude of the response is still uncertain to probably a factor of three, because we don't know what that sensitivity is. But because we've got data, then you can, you can, you can constrain it. You can use the data to constrain it. Yeah? The word constrain is... Okay, sorry, I, I, I probably shouldn't, shouldn't be using that, that, that word, but, but you know what I mean. I'm, I'm sort of limiting what's possible by, by what's consistent with the data. So having found this sort of best fit surface here, we can then actually use the gradient to say whether the models are overdoing or underdoing the warming in any particular direction. So do you see the, the gradient, if you look at the sort of slope of that surface on the back panel of that, of that um, cube, you notice it's going up by 0.2 at about the same amount of time as it's going across by 0.2. In other words, it's sort of going up along a 1-1 one, one line. That means the models have got the, slope, the, the, the response to anthropogenic warming about right. So even though you didn't know that to start with, it could have been out by a factor of two. In fact, this particular set of models gets the response about right. If you're a cynic, and I am a bit of a cynic about modelling, um, you could say, well, mm, they have been working at this for a while. So it's not so surprising that they get the magnitude more or less right because there is a certain evolutionary pressure on models that, you know, if, if they're really bad, they get checked out. Um, but uh, so, so you shouldn't read too much into the fact that they get the magnitude about right, but it so happens they do. Um, yes? Is this an average of models? Yes. This is, this is a straight... So, you know, keeping it, as I say, simple as possible, there's various other ways you could do it, but keeping it as simple as possible, this is just a straight average of the current generation of models. If you want the, uh, the, the jargon, since I, I know where you come from, the, the jargon set, uh, it's all archived down at the um, BADC in RAL, in, in the Rutherford Atlan Laboratory, um, and it's the so-called uh, CMIP-5 uh, suite of models. observations, which kind of observations? These are observations compiled, these are surface temperature observations compiled at the, the Hadley Center. It's called the Hadcrew T4 data set. Um, it's, one of the, it's one of three big data sets, um, three sort of major data sets, which can about four now actually, because the Berkeley Earth surface temperature one is, is the fourth. Um, they, but they would all give a very similar picture. And these are compilations of uh, meteorological observations on land. Um, observations from ships, uh, ships of opportunity um, in the oceans. And a lot of the early ones are, are actually, it's, it's quite an interesting detective process to try and work out sort of what temperatures were like. In fact, we owe a great deal, that I'm sure there's, there's a lot here actually in the exhibit, we owe a great deal to, in fact, the, the 19th century Royal Navy, um, which faithfully recorded sea surface temperatures even during battles. And you actually have people sort of recording, you know, they, they were dipping canvas buckets over the side and dipping a thermometer into it and checking. And you actually look at the records. In some cases, it was, you know, there were cannonballs coming in the side and they were, and they were still measuring sea surface temperature, and, and, which is phenomenal. And uh, thanks to the sort of stoicism of those Victorian um, uh, naval observers, we actually have a, a, pretty, a pretty good record back to the sort of second half of the 19th century. So each point is... Uh, <coughs> each point's a year. It's a global average, global average for the year. And of course, I could... We can make this as complicated as you like, um, but, 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 I mean, in the sense that um, we could look at more than just the global average, we could look at, you know, and we do, in fact, of course, when we're trying to separate out the different factors. Um, but, uh, but again, I'm sort, of, I, I'm, I'm sort of looking here for a sort of, a sort of haiku explanation, so to speak, sort of... Um, 
And, and it's still taken 15 minutes, so, so there is that, and I, I won't get that in September. Um, but, uh, <coughs> yeah, politicians don't give you that long. Um, but, uh, but, but it's, uh, but, you know, it, it, we need to explain these things, because it, ultimately, the conclusion you reach, like most of the warming over the past 50 years is attributable to human influence, it has pretty big consequences. I mean, it, 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 it's... Uh, um, one of the crucial points, of course, is, you know, obviously there is still some, uh, th- those little nails are not all, they've, they've, they've got some length, they're, they're not all lying exactly on the plane. And nor would you expect them to be, because of course we know that there is natural variability, chaotic variability, weather variability, if you like, in the climate system, which we would never expect to be able to predict with the combination of greenhouse gases and anything else. I mean, this is intrinsically random variability in the system. And if we look at our climate models, that sort of haze of black lines there is the sort of size of variability you'd expect from natural fluctuations in the current generation of climate models. And the red line is what's left over after we've done this fitting process and worked out what we can explain with as a response to human and natural factors over the past century. And as you can see, the red line sort of stays within the black line. So in other words, what's left over is consistent with what we'd expect from internal variability. And although this, this gets a bit, uh, sounds a bit nerdy, this is actually an absolutely crucial part of the whole process. Is you've got to be, as, as any statistician knows, you've got to convince yourself that your residuals are consistent with what you expected and that there isn't some big factor lying in there that's, uh, that's sort of um, mysteriously un- unexplained. Um, if we saw a sort of smooth oscillation in this residual, then that would be very suspicious. And we'd say, okay, there's something clearly wrong with our model. But we don't. We just see noise, much as we would expect from the, uh, from, from this, uh, the, the model simulated variability. Notice one thing about this, actually, that over the last 10 years of this period, uh, we had a, you see a bit of a downturn going from a warm year in 1998, you see sort of that spike, 1998, and then we had a cold year, 2008. In fact, 2011 and 12 were also quite uh, cold uh, uh, relative to, to uh, so similar to 2008. But as you can see, you know, we've seen periods like that in the past. You quite often get fluctuations. And of course, you do. You, know, you have a noisy series, you're going to get periods where it fluctuates from one side to the other. And that's just the nature of random fluctuations. So... Uh, we shouldn't read too much into these short-term variations. That's one very important thing to remember. I've already talked about how we can use the slope to indicate how much we're uh, overall underestimating the different um, uh, factors, uh, the responses to anthropogenic and natural warming. And in fact, the bottom line is that the models get the anthropogenic warming about right, but they tend to over-respond to volcanoes. And we think we, think we understand why. So models, those model-predicted huge spikes in response to volcanoes, those are bigger than what we see in the observations. And so, you know, the, the bottom line on this sort of analysis is that we can conclude that because the models are getting this anthropogenic warming trend about right, we can conclude that most of the warming we've seen over the past 50 years is due to human influence. So, so far, that's sort of looking back at the record and interpreting it um, using a combination of models and statistics. Um, but one question you might you know, worry about, you should still worry about a little bit, is, you know, is this just being wise after the event? 
Um, can we, you know, if we fiddle with our models long enough, you know, fit anything, you know, cynics would, would argue. So here's an example of how it, it may not be just being wise after the event. Um, a, a, this is a study published, this, this study was published uh, uh, over 10 years ago now, but I'm, I'm bringing you up to date because we, we actually published an update on it um, only last week. Um, and so this was a prediction of global temperatures using this process of how much of the warming is attributable to one factor versus another and using those factors to extrapolate the observed temperatures into the future. Okay, so using a combination of models fitting to data to make a forecast of global temperature. So crucially here, the last data we used um, in, this, in this study was August 1996. Um, and uh, in fact, the article itself, um, it took me quite a long time, mostly because we had our first kid in 1997, um, and it took me quite a long time to get the article done, um, but, uh, but it was submitted... Um, crucially, if you blow it up, it was submitted in the last millennium, just, um, quite what I was doing, submitting a paper between Christmas and New Year. Uh, anyway, my wife is very long-suffering, um, but uh, uh, she wouldn't let me do it now. Um, but anyway, it, fortunately, because it was submitted in the last millennium, we are now sort of um, quite a long time on. In fact, we're over 16 years on from the last piece of data we used, and of course, um, you know, there were times uh, when people took decadal climate forecasting seriously, um, and uh, this, of course, is Joseph making a 14-year climate forecast. So, so we've actually gone beyond 14 years, and uh, Joseph got it right, um, and uh, uh, we got it pretty much right as well. Um, so this is actually what happened after the last data point used in the forecast. All the yellow dots are the new global temperatures coming in, um, and the two red, uh, the two heavy red symbols are the, decay, the decadal average temperatures. Uh, the first one, the immediate decade immediately after the end of the forecast, and the second one, the decade that's just concluded at the end of 2012. So as you can see here, um, forecast basically predicted that temperatures for the decade ending at the end of 2012 would be about a quarter of a degree warmer than the decade ending in August 1996. And we nailed it to within a couple of hundredths of a degree. Um, so that sort of suggests that it wasn't just a matter of overfitting, that we were explaining what happened before then. Because if, if a model explains what's observed but also makes correct predictions about the future, that of course gives you greater confidence that you're on the right lines at least. Another interesting side uh, comment on this is that a lot of people are very preoccupied at the moment with the idea that the warming has stopped. Um, one of the things you realise looking back at these old forecasts is that it's not so much that the current temperatures are surprisingly cold, but that we had a period around the millennium where temperatures were actually quite a bit warmer than forecast. So we saw quite a, a very rapid warming in the late 90s, uh, had a few years around the millennium where temperatures were quite warm, and now, as you can see, that little blow-up um, which was kindly produced by The Guardian, actually. Um, um, so, so, I have, uh, so you can see in the little dark, we had a sort of fluctuation of temperatures away from the forecast line, and now it's sort of gone back, as you would expect it to do, to the forecast, um, because, you know, these fluctuations around a background trend, that's exactly what you'd expect. Um, so um, this, this forecast, incidentally, was cited in the... Uh, 
IPCC third assessment, so that's back in 2001, it was part of the basis for the statement that the observed rate of warming between 0.1 and 0.2 degrees per decade, which is pretty much what you see there, that grey um, cone, uh, would continue. Um, and so therefore, again, if you just want the numbers, if you expect between 0.1 and 0.2 degrees per decade, and then in the first decade you got 0.2, which is pretty much what we did get, then you, know, you wouldn't expect much warming in the following decade because it sort of bounced up and you know, it's going to keep bouncing around like that. That's what global temperatures do. Okay, so we think we understand what's happening to global temperatures. In fact, we understand it. When I think back to when I started in this, in this game, which was in the early 90s, um, the, the sort of general consensus, it's fair to say the general consensus in Oxford at that time when I was doing my PhD was... This sort of idea that the world would respond in such a predictable way to rising greenhouse gases was, was very naive, and that oh, it's a chaotic system, and you, know, you can't really, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't just sort of, you wouldn't expect it just to carry on warming because it started doing so. Um, but actually, it's turned out, it seems that the, the world on a very large scale is relatively simple. It, it does appear to be evolving more or less as expected. Uh, not I should stress, worse than expected. Um, there were a lot of people, I don't think I was among them, um, a few years ago, who perhaps were looking at that sort of excursion above the background trend and getting excited that it was warming up far faster than expected. Uh, most, most mainstream scientists were pretty cautious about that, and I think I wouldn't say it was worse than expected, I wouldn't say it was much better than expected. It's more or less pretty much what we expected back in the 90s. So we think we understand what's happening to global temperature. But it's this kind of thing that, of course, really matters if you live in Oxford. Um, so uh, those with sharp eyes, this is Vicarage Lane in 2003. Uh, many of those here will no doubt remember those floods. These were the floods on the Avenue Road. Um, we've had uh, uh, floods, of course, in Oxford before. These, these were um, particularly damaging ones recently. And, of course, we've had more, particularly down the Botley Road, in the past few years. So how do we understand the relationship between that global temperature rise and events like Oxford weather? If, if there is a relationship at all, we shouldn't assume there's a relationship before we start. So the first thing to realise is that, you know, I've been talking about global temperatures, but we see a very similar picture um, in different regions. Um, so these are, the black lines here are observations, and the red uh, bands are what you would expect from the combination of natural and human influence, and the blue bands are what you would expect from natural factors alone, and you'll notice that in most cases the observations have moved out of the range you'd expect from natural factors alone, so in most regions of the world, human influence on climate is clearly playing a role in the rising temperatures. But of course the pattern's not uniform. You can see here, um, sort of brighter colours, uh, redder colours, show where we expect warming to be faster. So we expect more warming in the Arctic, where the sea ice is melting and you get a positive feedback going on. Uh, we also expect more warming over land. You'll notice there's actually a, a, a region of rather less warming than the rest of the world in the North Atlantic. And in fact, the UK um, is one of the regions which actually is sort of warming slowest, if you like. Um, and um, that's, that's, that's important because, of course, the way in which um, climate change impacts the UK is modulated by these large-scale patterns. And, of course, if we're concerned about flooding, it's not just temperatures we need to worry about. 
but it's precipitation. So this is the pattern of precipitation uh, we expect. Um, and you, can, so this is, you don't need to absorb all the details. This is just to emphasize that if we're looking at precipitation, changing precipitation, there's much more structure to this. There's much more detail. It's much more varied from region to region. And when we zoom in on a particular event, like those floods that happened in autumn of 2000, we not only need to understand large-scale patterns of change in temperature and precipitation, but we have to understand how the atmospheric circulation is responding as well. Because what actually happened in the autumn of 2000 was the jet stream, which I hope most people here have heard of, um, is this, this band of high winds across the North Atlantic, which normally sits with a maximum over Newfoundland and over the north, that's the colours on this plot. Um, so that's where the jet stream normally resides. And in autumn 2000, and again in all of these successive periods where we've had uh, autumn and winter, very high rainfall seasons in the UK, we've seen a sort of average displacement of the jet stream out towards the UK. Um, and what this means is that um, whether the sort of depressions and things that ought, as it were, to cross Scotland and dump all their rain on Scotland, have been sort of diverted slightly southwards and have been dumping all their rain on southern England, where it doesn't belong. Okay? And, and Scotland, uh, I'm sure the Scots here, but Scotland's nice and hilly. Um, you know, it can take a lot of rain because it runs off quite quickly. If you put the same amount of rain on southern England, it's all flat. The, yeah, you know what happens? The basins fill up and the ground saturates. Um, and we end up with um, soggy carpets in South Oxford. Um, so, so this even quite subtle, you'll, you'll notice the contours, they're not, they're not far off where the bright colours are. It's, it's not a big displacement here. Um, and the jet stream, of course, wobbles around from day to day by more than that amount. Um, so it's, it's quite a subtle effect you're looking for to explain something like a damaging event in UK weather. And this is the real challenge we have in making this link between global temperatures and, and large-scale climate change and UK weather. Here's something to remember, if you don't remember anything else from this talk. Um, climate's what you expect, weather is what you get. I, I understand this is due to Mark Twain originally. Um, if we can sort of turn this around now. Um, climate is what you affect and weather is what gets you. Okay? So um, greenhouse gases just blaming you, of course, but, you know, t collectively, um, we are altering the climate. That's the sort of nub of the, 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 the point of the first part of this talk. And yet it's weather events that actually do damage. So understanding this link between climate and weather is, is central to, to, to quantifying actually how much damage we're doing as a result of uh, the rise rising greenhouse gases. Crucially, of course, Oxfordshire has flooded before. Um, if you have time and inclination, and particularly in nice weather like this, um, go and explore around Shillingford, and you'll find there's an old house near the bridge in Shillingford, which has this cast-iron plaque on the wall marking flood levels at different times. And there were some extraordinary floods. That's a bicycle, um, it's a bike lane, so you can get an idea, you know, that's probably about six foot, that post there. And uh, I think it was 1803, um, the flood levels were well over people's heads. That's the sort of tick right at the top of the, this flood. And in 2003, when we had all that damage, that was where it was. Okay, so it was doing plenty of damage, even at that level, but you couldn't conclude just from seeing a flood like that, oh, this is climate change, plenty of people did at the time, but you know, just because you see something like that, you can't actually immediately draw a, a, a causal explanation. 
And we do need to be careful about every time we see a, 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 weather, a weather event we don't like, um, blaming it on global warming, um, as Bloomberg Businessweek did at the beginning of this talk. Uh, in fact, there's a beautiful um, uh, cartoon, I think in a South African newspaper, um, which uh, a colleague picked up for me. Um, so, so the guy on the left, if you can't read it at the back, he's saying, it's quite hot today, and the guy on the right is saying, yep, global warming. And then he says, ah, but they say it'll be unseasonably cold next week. Ah, that's because of the unpredictable weather patterns due to global warming. And then, of course, the guy on the right gets, uh, left gets cross. If it's hot, that's proof of global warming. If it's cold, that's proof of global warming too. Modern climatology is an easy science. Um, so, so we need to be very careful of this, this tendency to blame everything on whatever the sort of explanation du jour is. And at the moment, it's undoubtedly you know, a lot of people are very keen to blame any weather they see on, on human influence on climate. So, you know, since I was nearly flooded in 2003, um, my, uh, a lot of my, my research group, not, the, not that we're entirely driven by parochial concerns in the university, of course, but we, we have been um, pretty obsessed, if you like, with this question of attribution and trying to answer the question, you know, can we quantify what the role of human influence on climate is on weather events like those uh, flood events that occurred in the UK? And we didn't actually focus just on Oxford, it was more sort of UK-wide, this is a UK-wide study, and in fact we, we focused on 2000 because in the country as a whole, um, 2000 was a, a more damaging, a more, a, a more important event, even though it wasn't, didn't do so much damage down the Abingdon Road. Um, so this experiment um, was uh, uh, an exercise we did, in fact some of you in this room may have participated, um, we, we, what we needed to do was to try and quantify how the increase in greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and the consequent global warming um, might have affected the chances of floods such as occurred in autumn 2000. Uh, how, how, how these external factors might have affected the odds of those floods occurring. We knew, because you can go and look at the plaque in Shillingford, that global warming couldn't be blamed entirely for those floods because there was a sense in which those floods could have happened anyway, because they did happen, floods like them, in the past. Um, so, so what we were trying to do is work out how much uh, the, the odds on the floods were being affected, the odds of floods of, those, of that magnitude were being affected by uh, human influence on climate. So this is the point where I think we need a, to, to break out into, into a, a visual aid. So can I, uh, we were talking earlier, can I ask you to roll this, this dice, please, uh -huh. and call it out. Roll it, roll it on the floor and, and call it out. Yeah? Six. Okay. Nothing much about that. Roll those again. Another six, but it hit the wire. All right. Okay, we'll, 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 uh, we'll say that's a buy. Okay. Another six, okay? So you're a very lucky man. Um, but, but we couldn't... We've got a load of stuff. Yeah, okay, well, that, that, ah, well there you are. Um, so, so yes, it is, yeah, we could keep doing this, but it would get boring, um, because, uh, because it, it is a, it's a very heavily loaded dice. Um, but you can buy them in the joke shop, in the turn, by the way. Um, and uh, so, 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 but it, it, it serves to make... Um, uh, you did it much better than I did when I was trying it out on Newsnight. There's a rather embarrassing clip on Newsnight. Some people might have seen where it refused to come up to six. I'm like, come on, the damn thing. Anyway, uh, but, uh, apparently there's some magic in live television that things never work. 
if they involve animals or children or loaded dice. Anyway, um, but so uh, it, it did come up six more often than it should have done anyway. But the point here is that you roll a dice, you get a six, okay? Is, and, and it's a loaded dice. Um, is it because of the loading? Well, in a sense it is, because obviously the loading made it much more likely you, you were to get a six. But you wouldn't say that, but for the loading, you wouldn't have got a six, all right? And that's the sense in which we have to understand the link between weather and climate. Okay? We are loading the weather dice in favor of certain events happening and against other events happening. It would have been very hard for you to roll a one with that dice, for example. Um, and so some events are becoming more likely, others are becoming less likely, and crucially, you have to roll the dice a few times to realize. And that's important. Now, in this particular dice, you didn't have to roll it very often. In fact, I think you guessed after about two rolls, okay? Um, which is fair enough, but if it was a much more subtle loading, then you might have taken, you know, 20 rolls to realize, oh, I'm getting, you know, 10% too many sixes. And, all that. And, and, you know, you could still sort of put it down to a fluke. And, in fact, for a really subtle effect, such as, as we found to our cost, so to speak, the... Um, role of human influence on climate in the autumn 2000 floods, you might have to roll the dice literally tens of thousands of times in order to see the impact of human influence on climate coming through in the odds of those floods occurring. Now we were unable to do that um, in Oxford with our own computing resources, so in fact we, we did this by enlisting the help of the general public. And in fact if any of the volunteers who helped uh, here, and I know a couple of them are here in this room, um, are my my long-suffering father actually allowed us to test out the software on his home PC, and I think we broke it on several occasions. But eventually, by the time we released it to the main, to, to the general public, um, it was it was pretty reliable, and it still is. And if you want to join in, uh, the Google Weather at Home or ClimatePrediction.net, um, and you can be running your own climate model on your home PC uh, within a few minutes. Um, and contributing to this effort of basically rolling the weather dice many, many times to see how different factors are affecting the odds on different uh, weather events. Um, the kind of models we're running um, can be pretty realistic. I mean, this, this was the model we used for the Autumn 2000 study, and if you compare weather in the observed climate on the top panel and the evolution of weather in one of the wetter members of our ensemble of runs of the climate model on the bottom panel, you can see that we're seeing the kind of events we saw in the autumn 2000 in this model um, simulated really quite realistically. We obviously don't see them at the same time because you wouldn't expect, you know, you can't predict the sequence of sixes, so to speak, in your, in your rolls of, of the dice, but we are seeing that uh, this model is capable of simulating the relevant meteorology for the autumn 2000 floods. And I'm going to give you a result, and so this is an unashamedly um, challenging plot, but, you know, it's important, so bear with me, and I will explain to you, to you what, what it's about. We wouldn't bother to show this to a politician. Um, but um, but so, so what we have here is in blue um, what our models told, told us, and comparing them with, with observations, what we infer, um, the risk of a, a flood of a given magnitude was in the autumn 2000. As a, so, so you have uh, rarer events in the horizontal and worse events in the vertical. Okay, so you obviously the, 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 the bigger the flood, the, rare, the, the less frequently it happens. That's why the blue slopes up in that direction. 
All right? Now, the green haze is what we think this risk-return plot would have looked like in a hypothetical world without human influence. The world that might have been, if you like, if we hadn't raised greenhouse gas levels, which we can simulate in our models. Of course, we can't observe it directly in the real world because we only have one look at the real world. The real world, if you like, is just one of these points. And you can see there's many, many, many points on that, each of which is a one-year simulation of the weather performed with a fairly detailed weather model. It would have taken a couple of months on somebody's PC back in the, back in the years when we, we did this experiment. Um, so you can see there's, there's tens of thousands of runs required to do this kind of analysis, mainly because we're not seeing a very strong signal. Um, you could put it that we're seeing a doubling of risk, which sounds fairly dramatic, but you can also see that there's a lot of uncertainty in that world that might have been. And you can see that you know, the green band extends all the way up to the blue one. So it's possible that we haven't seen any increase in flood risk as a result of greenhouse gases. It's possible that we've seen more than a doubling. Um, and you know, if we had to put a number on it, we'd say it was about a doubling was our best, best estimate. So that is some evidence that past greenhouse gas emissions have increased flood risk in the UK. But it's a pretty, it's important to stress, it's a pretty <coughs> hazy picture. And, sounds a little bit like British Rail now, it, it, it has to be the right kind of flood. Um, and in, in a follow-up to this paper, Alison Kay and co-workers down at CH Wallingford used exactly the same data to look at a very different kind of flood. This was, so this study was looking at a flood that did happen in autumn 2000. And Alison and her colleagues asked the very intriguing question, how has human influence on climate affected the risk of a flood that didn't happen in the spring of 2001? You may think, this is, sounds a little bit academic, but of course, if you're, in, if you're in an insurance company, floods that don't happen are just as important as the ones that do. Um, so so uh, it is important to understand how different risks are changing, even though you may have only seen some of them actually happen. So this is a spring flood on the River Don. And you can see here, the green haze is mostly to the left of the blue, meaning that the um, human influence on climate has actually made um, the risk of a flood like, the, like this one on the River Don less likely. You may think, well, that's a bit strange. How can global warming, you know, you're sort of accustomed to thinking of global warming making floods more likely, but not every kind of flood. This is a spring flood, which um, has happened in the UK, last happened extensively in 1947, where you have an accumulation of snow, yet rain on the snow, massive flooding, as all the snow melts suddenly and, and overwhelms the ability of the rivers to get rid of it. So spring floods have become less likely. Autumn floods have become more likely. And in fact, over the year as a whole, floods risk has gone up ever so slightly, but not as much as if you focus on one season or another. That, of course, introduces a really interesting conceptual problem. If that's the situation, um, you know, and, and we're going to get onto this sort of whole question of, 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 of liability towards the end of the talk, um, if, if an autumn flood happens and that kind of flood has been made more likely, but you can show that another kind of flood has been made less likely, does that mean you can't blame greenhouse gases, or you can blame greenhouse gases for the flood that happened. That's not really a scientific question. That's, a, that's one for the lawyers, really. Interesting. Um, okay, 
Uh, another event, uh, which I'll skate over quite quickly, just to show that we don't just do floods, we don't just focus on Oxford. Um, uh, we looked at the Russian heat wave, this extraordinary um, 12 degree temperature anomaly you can see there in central Russia in 2010. Um, and again, the conclusion there was that the warming we've seen since the 1960s at least um, has increased the odds on a heat wave of that nature. In fact, from by and large, our conclusions for heat waves are rather, as you might imagine, are rather stronger than our conclusions can be for floods. Um, but heat waves are not typically something we're very preoccupied by in Oxford, certainly not now. Um, so I, I thought giving, a, giving you a talk about heat wave risk uh, we might be seen as a bit tasteless after the march we've had. Anyway, so um, question, just however, I can answer the question you're all, I hope you're all asking. Uh, was human climate uh, to blame for the wettest nine months on record, which is April to, April to December 2012? Those were the, the, that nine-month period in the Radcliffe Met Station um, was the, wet, the wettest nine months we've, we've, ever, we've ever seen, uh, according to Ian Ashbold, one of the observers there. And our preliminary answer, and I should stress this is preliminary because this is early days for this analysis, notice the paper on the autumn 2000 floods was published in 2011. That was pretty slow even for us, but, but I mean it does take time. And the reason for that was because we weren't, the reason it took so long is we really weren't sure what the answer was. And we didn't want to come out and say yes, no, you know, without really trying to pin it down. So this is very preliminary, and so don't, if there's any journalists in the room, I'd rather this didn't get reported. As far as we can tell, the answer's no. Okay, so this is two distributions, bell curves of probability. I'm sorry it's not on the same format as the others, but the group only produced this plot last week. Um, so Sarah Sparrow and, and, and others uh, working here in Oxford have been doing exactly the same kind of thing, looking at the distribution and how the distribution's shifting. So this is a bell curve probability. If you'd seen the red curve shifted to the right of the blue one, you'd be saying, ha, um, human influence on climate had increased the risk of these intense precipitation seasons. But you're not seeing that. As far as we can tell, so far, and this is very preliminary analysis, um, we are, we, we have, human influence on climate did not play a big role in those summer floods and the, the, the high summer precipitation we had last year. So, this is what politicians are say, saying. Back in 2000, John Prescott was saying, you know, people know that something's wrong and climate change is affecting them. Um, there is a, therefore, I would say it took us 10 years to, 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 I mean, he came out pretty quick. It took us 10 years to scratch our heads and thinking about it. But we'd say, actually, you know, the idea that something's wrong and that climate change is affecting weather risk, I would say that that's, that's actually probably a reasonable thing to say. Others are saying stronger things. Here's a quote from Al Gore, as recently as 2011. We're not only wrote, I'll draw your attention to the last sentence here. We're not only rolling 12s, we're rolling 13s and 14s, and soon we'll be rolling 15s and 16s. This is I much less comfortable with, this idea that we're seeing weather events that we simply would not have seen without human influence on climate, I think is, is very difficult to support with the science we have at the moment. So you have to be clear that, you know, the influence, say if you're blaming large-scale drivers of climate for the weather, it's not that we're seeing weather events that couldn't have happened if we hadn't interfered with the climate. You're seeing the dice being loaded in a particular direction. And for many events, 
like the spring floods on the River Dawn, if they had happened, that would be an event that had actually been made less likely by human influence. And other events, like the wet season we had last year, the wet summer, we would say it actually hasn't made any difference either way. So that's, that's where we're at. But what I do want to try and convince you is that, so I'm afraid Al gets, uh, gets across. Um, what I would like to convince you is there is a reasonable question here that not just that it's, it, this is interesting, obviously I'd like to convince you this is interesting science, but there is, a, there is an answer to this question. You know, when, when something happens, in principle, the scientific community should be able to answer your question about why it's happening. How much has human influence on climate contributed either for or against the risk of this event occurring? At the moment, we're not doing that. We hope, actually, and I'm agitating continuously, that this should ultimately become part of the job of the Met Office. That the Met Office should not only have its part of its brief predicting the weather, but it should also have as part of its brief explaining the weather. That whenever we get to the end of a season, the Met Office should be able to say, yeah, okay, we've just had a season, all these bad things happened, all good things happened, and this is how the odds of them happening were affected by human influence on climate. Or other things, like were affected by the volcano we had last year, or were affected by the current state of the sun. This is perfectly doable. It, all it requires is rolling that dice quite a few times, and unlike, of course, you rolling the dice, which didn't take a huge amount of effort, um, for the metalists to do it, it involves running a massive supercomputer an awful lot of times um, in order to do that. So it does take resources. But I think these are resources that would be very well spent. Because there are people who really matter who think the answers to these questions are important. Here's one of them. David Grossman, writing crucially in the Columbia Journal of Environmental Law, i.e. not a scientific journal, that's why it's interesting, um, that, but he was writing about global warming and weather events being affected by global warming, and he was saying that plaintiffs, people who were uh, affected by adverse weather, must show that the risk factor in question had increased the odds by around a factor of two. Now, if you remember our autumn 2000 flood study, that was about the factor we were seeing. Of course, we had a lot of uncertainty in that. So I probably wouldn't want to stand up in a court to defend that as definitely more than a factor of two. But there are other events, for example, the European heat wave of 2003, um, for which the um, evidence is stronger, and we probably would be able to defend the risk having been increased by at least a factor of two as a result of human influence on climate. And that, of course, is very interesting, because it opens the whole possibility of those uh, responsible, those who, those who profit by the processes causing global warming being held liable for their consequences, which really turns the whole global warming discussion rather on its head. And that's actually where I, you know, I, I'd hope the conversation will start here. By the way, as a little bit of a side, if you think this sounds far-fetched, and it is a little far-fetched at the moment, I, I'm prepared, prepared to admit that, um, liability for CO2 emissions might be far-fetched, but what about if we actually start deliberately geoengineering the planet, deliberately seeding um, clouds, for example, uh, or into the stratosphere to try and you know, protect the uh, Arctic from higher temperatures, which is actually being seriously discussed as, as an option. 
Um, this is, if you like, so that's, there's a plane busy um, creating clouds in the stratosphere, um, and uh, uh, it sort of creates, if you like, an artificial volcano, which can, as we saw on those opening slides, have a substantial cooling effect on the planet. So if we set up a permanent artificial volcano, you have the, you, you know, you have the ability to turn down the temperature. That would work, but there would be side effects. And uh, what a very interesting paper published only last week um, looks at um, coincidence of northern hemisphere volcanoes with the Sahel rainfall record. And intriguingly, in this paper, they showed that the very dramatic um, uh, Sahel drought that occurred in the early 1980s, you remember Bob Geldof? Um, um, okay. um, so it was, uh, was preceded cause and effect you can't prove here because it's observations, but they also have some modeling studies to suggest this is, this is cause and effect, was preceded by a northern hemisphere volcano, which of course is exactly what you would do if you wanted to keep the Arctic cool. You'd put up a sort of permanent northern hemisphere volcano. So if you did that, you might well get blamed for turning off Sahel rainfall. Well, more worryingly, even if you didn't turn off Sahel rainfall, you can, you can bet your life you'll be blamed for absolutely anything that happens, whether it's too much or too little rainfall. If one country starts doing geoengineering, it will then immediately start being blamed for whatever weather happens, wherever it happens in the world. So, you know, this whole question of liability is going to, you know, it's going to bubble up in some form um, as the climate um, uh, issue progresses. So, you may be asking yourself, who is to blame? Well, one of the easiest drivers, sorry about the size of the text here, but one of the easiest ways to sort of sum up um, relative contributions to climate change today um, is just by asking um, how much carbon has a particular country emitted since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And you'll notice we're normally accustomed to thinking of America and China as the sort of big polluters. But just to make you feel powerful, I just want to draw your attention to the fact that um, the, the sort of just, just after China on this plot is uh, the little United Kingdom. Okay, with a fairly small fraction of the world's population, because of course, thanks to some of the ingenious inventions exhibited in this museum, we got burning early. Um, we actually have a, a cumulative uh, carbon uh, injection into the atmosphere, uh, almost almost as large as, as China's, and per head of population, of course, we are in fact the world's largest polluter. So you know, be afraid if this liability thing ever starts to take off. Um, I'm uh, slightly worried about the time, uh, but uh, I'm. Let, let, let me. Let, I'll sort of progress through quickly to sort of where I think this might go. So this, this, I finished the science. Now you'll be happy to hear. And the rest of this is just a sort of rant about the uh, political implications. Um, so um, the, the reason this matters is that when people talk about the climate issue, they they typically forget some really basic big numbers. One of them. One of those big numbers is the $5 trillion a year we spend on fossil energy. Now, that dwarfs anybody's estimate of what climate change is likely to cost, either adapting to or the, the, the consequences of climate change over the next 50 years. Okay? One dollar in every ten is spent on, on energy, most of that on fossil energy. So the sort of standard picture people have of climate, of, of, of climate policy is that somehow we're going, to, we're going to increase the zero amount we spend at the moment on emission taxes and permits, turn the world energy economy upside down, and somehow make all these impacts go away. 
I find that completely implausible. And it's not happening anyway that you can see. So what's actually happening is, you know, we've got this sort of zero expenditure on uh, taxes and permits. You could instead try and incorporate these near-term costs of climate change into the cost of energy, and the need for taxes and permits might just go away. Just another thing to think about. This may seem a rather odd example to give as an environmental good news story. So this, as I'm sure you can remember, those horrible pictures of oil gushing out onto the floor of the Gulf of Mexico a couple of years ago. And the shrimp fisherman in the middle losing his livelihood. But of course, the shrimp fisherman could have got a job helping with the cleanup. And crucially here, that cleanup, then um, the shrimp fisherman would have been both compensated for and paid for helping with the cleanup by BP. BP didn't bat an eyelid about the fact that, yep, you know, we're, okay, yes, they tried to get some other companies involved as well, but they certainly didn't say, um, you should blame all the people who use our petrol. I never heard that argument being put out. If you release fossil carbon onto the floor of the Gulf of Mexico, you're responsible. But if you release fossil carbon into the atmosphere, you're not. Why not? So if these greenhouse gas emissions are exacerbating those wildfires in Australia or this storm in Alaska, then perhaps there's a sense in which you know, we should be making this connection and, and, and linking up the cost of, of dealing with the consequences of climate change to the, this, this massive uh, industry that's primarily responsible. Of course, the challenge... Um, this particular village in Alaska is interesting because they are actually, they have been trying to take on big fossil fuel companies. They, they are still in the process, they keep losing, but they're still in the process of suing um, ExxonMobil for the costs of maintaining their sea defenses to protect them against Arctic storms, which they are claiming have been made worse because the sea ice is all melting uh, and during the storm season, and as a result, waves are coming in and crashing over their defenses and, and, and smashing up the village. Um, so far, they've been pretty unsuccessful. But it's interesting, the reason they've been unsuccessful has not been that anybody's really disputing the link between rising greenhouse gases and increased storm risk um, in the vicinity of Kivalina. It's been that um, the uh, US courts, in particular, um, have argued that um, the solution must rest in the hands of the legislative and executive branches of our government, not the federal common law. In other words, if I just translate that out of lawyer speak, relax, citizens, governments have it all under control. I find that a very worrying um, uh, statement, particularly because I was recently um, at uh, the uh, UNFCCC meeting in Doha, where people were sitting around talking about climate change, and you really did not have the feeling at that meeting that governments have it under control. But perhaps things are changing. One of the things that happened in Doha was that for the first time, the issue of loss and damage was formally placed on the UNFCCC agenda. That's the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. So governments are starting to talk about who's responsible for the costs of adaptation and cleanup, if you like, to climate change. And this, this, this is going to raise some really interesting questions, which are not scientific questions, questions which you're as well qualified to ask as I am. You know, if, if you're living in Europe, 
and you buy an, 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 an emission permit for almost nothing, because they're very cheap at the moment, does that mean you're not liable for the consequences of your emissions? I don't know the answer to that question. Does that mean if the European Commission has made those permits ridiculously cheap by over-allocating, does that mean the European Commission's liable? I've asked them this question. They haven't answered it. Um, they haven't even acknowledged the question exists. But it, it does exist. If people are handing out, arguably, the world's single largest authoriser of greenhouse gas emissions today is something that claims to be the good guy, the European Commission. What's their liability in all this? Um, if you, one crucial question, of course, if you sell fossil carbon to somebody who has no option but to use it and vent the CO2 into the atmosphere, are you liable for the consequences? That's important because, of course, nobody's going to chase all of us driving around in our cars. What the, the lawyers are going to want to find the big companies who sell us the fuel we put in those cars. So that principle of upstream liability, it's called, is absolutely critical for any credible um, uh, uh, liability regime to, to develop. Where could this lead? Well, you know, it could be a fundamentally different way of approaching the whole climate issue. You say, instead of trying to get agreement on how much we should emit into the atmosphere, you just say, emit away, but you're responsible for the consequences. And eventually, as the suits come in and the bills come in for paying for the costs of climate change around the world, you know, companies would look at this and say, yeah, it'd be better just not to dump this in the atmosphere, wouldn't it? Um, and avoid all these annoying lawsuits every time the weather gets nasty somewhere in the, somewhere in the some corner of the world. And there is an alternative. You know, we can use fossil carbon. They're doing, it, they're doing this, they're building this now in Australia, the world's largest CCS plant, carbon capture and storage plant. Uh, we can use fossil carbon without venting the CO2 into the atmosphere. So, just to sort of give you a sort of challenging picture to remember, um, that was the charge that BP took for the Deepwater Horizon disaster. Okay? If BP was simply held liable for the climatic consequences of their products, that would be a, actually a, a much smaller charge, but growing. And eventually a company like BP might decide, yeah, okay, we'll take care of this. And then the whole problem of climate change would just go away. Wouldn't that be nice? Good point to go to questions. Thank you.